I got to preach it, right? At least some of it. Um, but there are two things that I think are really neat for me that I am excited about this series, A Thrill of Hope. And it really comes down to um, two specific words that stick out to me. One is thrill, right? That idea of thrill, that, that excitement, that almost expectation, if you will. Um, I, the best way that I can kind of frame this idea of thrill for me was um, kind of riding a roller coaster, right? Um, I remember the first time I, I actually rode a roller coaster. It was in Gurney, Illinois, Great America, big theme park kind of thing. Um, there was a ride, it was, it, and I was in physics. I was a junior in high school. I know, it took, I was a late, late bloomer when it came to riding roller coasters. I really didn't like them. But I was a late bloomer when it came to riding roller coasters. But I was in physics in high school my junior year. And one of the great benefits of physics, um, because otherwise I really didn't like physics. I didn't understand it. I didn't get the math of it. I didn't get the... It was just, it was just awful for me. I didn't understand physics. But there was one silver lining. And that is, at Great America, for one day out of the year, they only opened the park to physics students, to Illinois and Wisconsin. And so we got to go there, and it was just all of us physics students, and we had to do experiments on the rides, you know, physics experiments on the rides. And so my friend said, okay, Dan, you know, we're doing roller coasters today, because you got to do them, Okay. And, and just, there was a roller coaster called Shockwave. Um, it's now been replaced, and it might have been replaced since then, but it's now been replaced by a much better ride called Superman. But, um, and in which they actually, in, they make you horizontal. They actually seat you and then you go horizontal and then it's actually you're flying, you know. Which, everyone loves to fly, you know. Everyone loves to fly, which is why Superman is so cool. He gets to fly. And he doesn't need any help doing it. Um, Anyways, there was Shockwave. And Shockwave was the biggest roller coaster in the park. And so my friend says, Dan, we're going to do this one. And you got to go. Oh, and as we're in line, he says, oh, Dan, and by the way, one stipulation, I do front seat, front car on this one. And I'll never forget the first time riding Shockwave. And by the way, I'm watching people come off of this ride and they're holding their head. They're, you know, it's just like, whoa, this, do I really want to do this sort of thing, right? And But I'll never forget that thrill of going up and the first drop and you hang over the edge, waiting for the rest of the cars to catch up before you finally take that first drop, right? And some of your stomach's turning right now, kind of thing. I mean, I loved that thrill. I loved that thrill. It was just that anticipation, that excitement, that almost like, oh my word, I mean, this is... This is exciting. This is so exciting. And I'm screaming like a girl. And it's wonderful, right? You know, doing three big loops after that and then some corkscrews and then you get off the ride and you're like, let's do it again. Right? That's the thrill that I'm talking about here. That's the thrill of Christmas. And I, and I realize that for many of us, myself included, man, this year is so different, isn't it? And I don't know if we're as excited about Christmas as maybe we have been in years past. But here's the thing, is that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have so much to be excited for. This is Jesus Christ coming to earth 
as a baby for the sole purpose of connecting with us so that He will then eventually die for us. That is unbelievable. The thrill of that anticipation of coming, and particularly in the context in which Jesus came, in which God was notably silent for hundreds of years, and then all of a sudden speaks. What a beautiful thing. That anticipation, that excitement. So that's one thing I'm excited for. Here's the other thing, hope. I love hope. I even went to college called Hope College. I love hope. And, you know, we define hope, and I love this. Hope is a favorable, and I love this, confident expectation. It's an incredibly happy anticipation of an unseen, not an unknown, but an unseen future. Here's the thing. This thrill of the hope of Christmas is the fact that we know we have excitement because of the anticipation that although we are living in tough times now, although we are living in times where people get sick, where people lose their jobs, where people get angry at each other, where there is divisiveness, where there is just hurt and pain and wars and rumors of wars, where there is natural disasters. You know, I was reflecting on this the other day and how, you know, just just focus in on my own self that I am. But did you know that in Latin America, they have suffered in places like Nicaragua, not one, but at least two hurricanes that have hit their area, the same area, within several weeks of each other. They have displaced thousands of people. And we have virtually heard nothing of it. But there are people who are just suffering, and we ourselves are suffering. And yet, here's as Christians, we know this, and we hang on to this truth. This isn't going to last, is it? We have hope. We know that there is an unseen future, not an unknown one, because Jesus has told us what that future is going to be. So we know what that future is. We don't see it yet. We have glimpses of it, but we don't see it yet. But it's coming. It's coming. And what we even do in this space, in this time and in this place, is giving us glimpses of that future that is coming. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And I'm excited for that. I'm just excited for that. You know? It's scary but exciting at the same time. You know, and that's... Now, we know we have to go through this thing called death to get there. But that's okay. Because it's temporary. And I love how Scripture defines death oftentimes, right? It's called sleeping. It's called rest. They don't even define it as oftentimes death. The way it's oftentimes portrayed in Scripture is they're sleeping. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't mind sleeping. Especially after this life. Do you think we might need some time to rest? Amen. Right? It's okay. We're going to rest and then we're going to enjoy what a beautiful thing. And so, as we start this new series this morning, A Thrill of Hope, those are two things that I am just incredibly excited about that kind of stick out to me as we go through this series. And as we go through the series, we are going to be taking a look at different aspects of hope. That unbelievable future 
even though it is unseen, it is not un- unknown, that waits for us, that awaits us. And so we're going to be taking a look throughout this series, different aspects of hope. And today, we are going to take a look at the hope of redemption. The hope of redemption. And I'll get into all of what that means as we get into the passage this morning. But as we begin to look at this hope of redemption, we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. A very familiar passage of Scripture that we call the prodigal son. And it's in Luke chapter 15. Now, before I get into that, I want to show you that in my office, I have a print of a painting done by Rembrandt. And I want to show it to you this morning. And the painting is that of the prodigal son. I have a print of this that hangs in my office. I love this painting for a variety of different reasons. Okay? And this morning, as we take a look about the hope of redemption, I want us to remember to think of this painting. Because it is just an unbelievable painting that Rembrandt had painted. A couple of things just to keep in mind. Rembrandt most likely painted this near the end of his life. And as Rembrandt was oftentimes famous at doing, he would oftentimes paint himself into his own paintings. And in this case, he most likely painted himself as the prodigal son, the one who is kneeling. And you notice the cloth, the the absolute dregs that he is wearing. And we're going to get into that in the passage here. But he is kneeling before his father. And that most likely is Rembrandt. That he saw himself as a prodigal son. Now, this passage is nestled in a chapter, if you will, that deals with Jesus responding to religious leaders who were saying to Jesus, He eats with sinners. He eats with sinners. In other words, if Jesus claims to be who He says He is, which is the Savior, which is God Himself, why in the world is He eating with those who rejected Him? Why is He eating with those who want nothing to do with Him? Why is He eating with those who intentionally just disobey Him? Right? And Jesus responds to this criticism by sharing three stories. The first story is the story of the lost sheep. Right? Where He leaves the 99 to go after the one. And then He shares a second story about the lost coin. Where a widow finds and searches all over her house for that lost coin. And now we come to this story. What is unique about the other two stories I think that differs from the prodigal son is that the first is an animal which theoretically can't tell right from wrong, which theoretically can't really have any idea of what morality or ethics or belief and that kind of stuff is. However, he's talking about the value of the sheep. He's talking about the value of a coin, which is an inanimate object. I mean, it's an inanimate object. It can't feel, it can't do anything like that. It's an inanimate object. And yet, Jesus here is referring to the value of the sheep, to the value of the coin. But then we come to the prodigal son. And it's very different. 
It's not as though that the son isn't valuable. That's not the point of the story so much as the redemption of the son. And what I mean by that redemption is the rescuing of the son. The rescuing of the son. This morning, what I want us to see as we look at this passage and why we have this hope of redemption this Christmas season is I want us to see six R's of redemption or six R's of rescuing or six R's of redeeming that I want us to look at that I think make up why redemption is so important. Okay? And we're going to do that as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 15. And the first R is this. There is an intentional rejection. There is an intentional rejection. Now, as we take a look at Luke here, Jesus says the following as he starts this story of the prodigal son. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, here's the interesting thing. The son, the younger son, comes to the father and essentially says, Dad, I want to pretend as though you are now dead before me. Right? That's the only way you really get an inheritance. Someone has to die, usually, for that to take place. So the son says, Dad, why don't we rush this process up? I know that I am due one-third of your, in, of your estate, as the older brother is given two-thirds of the estate. I want my third now. So I want to just say, you're dead to me, and therefore give me what is owed to me right now, and you know, let's just call it square, kind of thing. Now here's the thing. Culturally, this son right now would be in danger of death. You did not go to your parents in those days like you probably wouldn't do today. But today we're probably a little bit nicer about it or maybe different about it. I mean, you imagine one of your children coming to you and saying, hey, mom, dad, um, you know, let's just pretend you're dead now. Give me my inheritance. I'd laugh if my kids came to me and said, you got nothing. You got nothing. Go ahead and do what you will with nothing. Have fun. Have at it. Right? But... Here's the thing, is that this son, in his boldness, if you want to call it that, or maybe more accurately, his foolishness, goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And you know what happens? You know what the dad does? The dad doesn't fight the son. The dad doesn't try to harm the son or punish the son. The dad says, okay. He agrees. And as it says here, he divides the wealth between them, both sons. Both sons. In other words, for a redemption to take place, there has to be a rejection. Let's just take this out of that time. Chances are, we all may have known people. Maybe we ourselves were those people. Where maybe we have chosen or did choose to go down a road or maybe you saw someone you loved and cared about deeply was going down a road that you knew was not going to be good. They were making a decision that you thought, this is not good. 
And in making that decision, they, in doing so, rejected any sort of advice, counsel, wisdom, any sort of those kinds of things. And instead just said, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do, and no one's going to tell me different. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? The hardest thing is to let them go down that road. That's the hardest thing. And yet, the father who loves his son could have done and prevented his son from going instead says, okay, go. The son is rejecting the father and the father doesn't intervene. He lets his son go. How painful that is to let someone go. Maybe you've had to do that. Maybe you've had to let a friend go who was making a decision or making decisions that you knew you could not be there. You could not support. You could not help them. And you just simply had to say, okay, you've got to go. What a hard and painful thing to see that happen. Understand that this is what this father was dealing with. His son choosing to go down a road that the father knew was going to be hard, even dangerous. There is a rejection. There is an absolute rejection. By the way, all of us have rejected Jesus. All of us have rejected Jesus. We are born having rejected Jesus. We are born into what we call sin. We have all rejected Jesus. So that's the first R. Here's the second R that we find, and that is there is a removal. There is a removal. Take a look at what happens next in this story after the son gets his inheritance. Verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. He squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So all of a sudden here is that the son has an inheritance, and he leaves the safety of his home. He leaves the safety of his father. He leaves the safety of the rest of his family and his friends. And he goes off, not to some near place, but rather to some place very distant. And there, he lives whatever life he wants to live, and he does whatever he wants to do, and he spends his entire inheritance on partying, on living high on the hog, no pun intended, because that's eventually how he's going to be living, is feeding hogs, right? But nonetheless... That's what he did. In other words, when there is a rejection, not far behind that, there is a removal. There is a separation. Right? We see that very early on in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that as soon as Adam and Eve sin, there is a separation. 
there's a separation from them from God, but there's also separation from them from the garden. And they now have to leave the safety and the, perfect, the absolute perfect environment of that garden and go and live elsewhere, outside of that, and now begin to suffer as a result of their rejection. And we see the same thing here. This son now goes off to a distant country and he spent his entire inheritance. And now, all of a sudden now, he is left with nothing and he reaches what we might consider to be rock bottom. How far did he go down? Imagine this. A Jewish man having now as a job to feed pigs. The Jewish people considered pigs unclean, and yet this man now is feeding those pigs, and not only that, wishing that he could have some of the food that they are eating. Hit rock bottom. Perhaps we know people that have suffered, that have chosen to reject and to remove themselves and to go off and do whatever they want. And the reality is, is that perhaps in some way they will hit rock bottom. That they will hit rock bottom. And why do we in sometimes maybe even hope that they do? That they all of a sudden now come to the end of themselves. That that's not always a bad thing. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, this leads to the next R. There comes a realization. There comes a realization. Verse 17 says this, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? He finally came to his senses and said, You know what? My dad's hired employees live better than how I'm living. He finally hit rock bottom and he came to his senses. What I am doing here, how I am living, is not good. Not good at all. Not good at all. Come to our senses. That's why sometimes hitting rock bottom isn't always a bad thing. The hope is, is that when we come to the end of ourselves when we have made a decision that was not a good decision, when we've gone down a road that was not a good road, and now all of a sudden we're suffering because of those choices, that at some point we might hit rock bottom when there is nothing more we can do. When all of a sudden now we are in such a position that it is, we look at ourselves and think, how in the world did I get here? That we finally come to a realization there has to be something better. There has to be. This cannot be what my life will end up being like in the end. This cannot be the ending to my life. There has to be something better. That's what this son came to. He finally came to his senses when he had nothing left and he was feeding pigs as a, as a living. That he said, you know what? There's got to be a better, a better way. There's got to be a better way. And he said, you know what? My father, his hired hands, that has to be the better way. And therefore... The next R in redemption is this. There is a movement towards repentance. A movement towards repentance. Verses 18 and 19 says this. The son said this. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. That word heaven there is God. Okay? Same word. Heaven, God. I have sinned against heaven 
and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That is repentance. That is a turning around of his attitude. That is a turning around of his perspective, realizing that the choices he made were wrong. That the life that he lived was absolutely wrong and terrible and hard unnecessarily. And now he is saying, you know what? Father, I am so sorry. And in his words of repentance, he is not even asking to be a part of his family anymore. He is just begging his father when he is rehearsing this speech. Just hire me as one of your other hired people. I'll be satisfied that way, Dad. You don't have to have me back in your house. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be in your house. I'm not even worthy to be your son. No, no. Just hire me as you would anybody else and that'll be enough. The son isn't even looking to be his son anymore. He's just rather looking for a job. All he wants. Give me something that's better than this. I am so sorry for what I have done. So sorry. It's just a beautiful realization of coming to one senses that, you know what? I need to turn around and go the other way. That is what repentance is. And this son, all of a sudden now, says, I need to repent. In his fabulous book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen, says the following about this. And I think this is so crucial for us to understand about repentance. God rejoices when one repentant sinner returns. Think about this. The heavens rejoice. The angels sing. The moment you and I individually acknowledge our sins, repent of them, and accept Jesus, Angels sing. There is rejoicing in heaven. Even over one single person who does this. Statistically, he says, that is not very interesting. So what? One person. Eh. Out of seven billion. Or billions and billions prior to that, right? Of humans. But for God, numbers never seem to matter. Who knows whether the world is kept from destruction because of one two or three people who have continued to pray when the rest of humanity has lost hope and dissipated itself. From God's perspective, one hidden act of repentance, one little gesture of selfless love, one moment of true forgiveness is all that is needed to bring God from His throne to run to His returning Son and to fill the heavens with sounds of divine joy. That little act has cosmic ramifications. That one little act of repentance causes heaven to rejoice. And so the son decides, I need to go back. I need to go back home. And he does. And what we find is the next R in redemption, and that is this. There is a joyful receiving. A joyful receiving. 
Verses 20 and 21 says this. So he got up, the son did, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, we might think, man, that is just fantastic. And it is fantastic. We might not think anything of it. Maybe we might think, why, you know, the father was actually anticipating his son's coming home. What a phenomenal thing. His father was hopeful that his son would come to his senses and come home. And we see here that the son, that the father was waiting for that day to happen. He was looking out for his son. Maybe today is the day that my son finally comes home. Maybe today is the day. Some of you who have loved ones, some of you who have people that you know that have been maybe just absolutely compromised by addictions or by, you know, just unbelievable lifestyle choices that maybe every single day you might be saying to yourself, maybe today is the day that they will come home. Maybe today is the day that they will finally come home and say, Mom, Dad, I'm home. I'm here. Here I am. This father was anticipating his son's return. In other words, the father never gave up on the son. He never gave up on the son. Although he let his son go, he never let go of his son. He anticipated and wanted his son to come home. Now, here's the interesting thing. is It says here the father ran. He didn't even wait for the son to come near the house. A couple of reasons for this, perhaps. One is, he was moving to protect his son, most likely, because as the son would come into the town, chances are the townspeople already knew what this son had done. This son's life was going to be in danger. The townspeople were probably going to kill him for doing what he did. And so perhaps, one of the reasons why the father ran is seeing the son come to the edge of the town, the father said, no, not my son. And he runs to him to protect his son from possible harm that might come from those in the town to whom he's returning. I mean, that's unbelievable. And in doing so, the father shames himself by doing two things. One is he runs. You never run. A dad never has to run. Right? Particularly this dad. You never have to run. Running was sometimes seen as an act of belittling oneself. I'm glad we've changed our tune on that. I mean, I run for exercise. Maybe I do belittle myself in doing so. I don't care. I still will do it. But, nonetheless, because in order for this father to run, most likely this father was enrobed. And in order for this father to run, he would have to have lifted up his robes, therefore exposing legs, that sort of thing, which would have been a shameful thing to do. But in order to run, the father would have had to demean himself to get to his son. But the father wanted to get there. It's so important that he gets to the son. And he receives his son joyfully. In fact, as we see here, the son says this, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy to be called your son. I mean, the son has got his speech prepared and he's now saying to this, Okay, father, this is what... This is what I'm saying to you. I've I've rehearsed this speech. And now here it is. This joyful reception. He is received. He is not turned away. 
And this is something that is so important for us to realize. Is that there may be people in our lives that have gone away, have separated themselves, have done and made absolutely just harmful choices to themselves and to others. And at some point, they come to their senses and they want to come home. And when that moment happens, we better be willing to say, yes, come home. Yes, you're welcomed. Come home. And not be tempted to demean them further. Not to be tempted to make them feel even more worthless than they probably already do. The beautiful thing about this father is he was all about getting to his son so those things wouldn't happen. And then finally, the last R is this. There is a full and complete restoration. Listen to what the father says. As the son is giving his speech, verse 22, it says this, but the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has now been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, what is so unique and significant about this is that when the father says, bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the sandals, that was a restoration not to be one of his employees, but rather to be his son. Because you did not put those things on just anybody. He was restoring him as a son once again. Now, oftentimes, that's where the story ends, doesn't it? That's where we kind of like, oh, it's a beautiful thing. The father receives the son and it's wonderful and all that kind of stuff. But the story is not quite done yet. There's a whole nother story here. And that is of the older son. The story of the older son. Let me show that. Can we show that picture of the painting again? I want to show you the picture of the painting and why one of the things I love this painting so much in the way that Rembrandt depicts the whole prodigal son. And it's this. If you notice, there are three characters that are highlighted in the painting, don't you? The three characters are the father, the prodigal son, which by the way, prodigal means wasteful. Just to, to take what you have and waste it. And any time, by the way, that we take what God has given us, to take what God has gifted us with and waste it on anything of trying to get acceptance outside of God, we are prodigal sons and daughters. There's also a third person, and that is the son, the older son, who is highlighted on the right. A couple of things to notice. One is this. He is standoffish, isn't he? There is a separation between the father and the prodigal son and the older son. There is a gap there. The look on the older son isn't that of approving of what is going on. Rather, it is that of kind of judgmentalism. And we see this in the scriptures. Now, here's what happened. Verse 25. Now, the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. There was a party going on. He was out working. He comes home. There's a party. 
Seems like he wasn't invited. Right? Celebration going on. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became, rather than rejoicing that his brother has returned, rather than joining in the celebration that the fact that his brother has come back, instead what we read here is that he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, and what is so unique about that word son is that differ from the rest of the Greek word that was used for son in the previous verses in this passage is that the word here in the Greek means a term of endearment. Like he is actually saying the father to this son, you are, you are my son. This term of endearment in a very tender way. He says, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has now been found. And what is so unique about this story of the prodigal son is that it left off an S. It really is the story of the prodigal sons. The same thing that happened to the younger brother is now happening with the older brother. He has rejected. He has removed himself from this because he could not stand the fact that his dad would celebrate the homecoming of the younger brother who squandered the wealth wanted his father dead and wanted nothing to do with the family and this older brother was so obedient did everything that was commanded of him and you know what the amazing thing about this is about the older brother that I think is sometimes true of us who have been in church for a long time, and this is why this story is so phenomenal, is that it's a message for those who have not yet accepted Jesus, as well as for those who have and who have been with Jesus for any length of time, is that it is possible for us as Christians, as it was for this son, for him to be home and yet be far from home. It is possible for us as Christians to be with Jesus and yet at times to be far from Him. Because we miss the point of who He is at times. Why He came and why we are with Him. That Jesus saved us just as much as He saved that younger son. That younger brother. The temptation for us, as it was with this older brother, is for us to get resentful at those who come into the life of the church and come into a relationship with Jesus and we think that's not fair. Do you know the kind of life he led? At least I was more virtuous in my life. By the way, virtuousness almost always breeds resentment. Virtuousness almost always breeds resentment. It just does. And this was no different here. 
This older brother was resentful. And the temptation for us who have been in church for any length of time, who have been in a relationship with Jesus for any length of time, is to look at someone who might come into the church family, who might come into the family of Jesus Christ, and to look at them and the celebration that goes on, and for us to say, well, that was never done for me. And I never lived at least a close to, to the sinful life that that guy did. Both are prodigal sons. Both have squandered what God has given. And we need to be very careful here. Here's the thing, and this is the hope of redemption. It ties it all together. Matthew 1, verse 21, and I love this, as Jesus is being shared to the world, the birth story. Matthew shares the following in the midst of this. He says this in verse 21. She, that being Mary, will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Whether or not we know Jesus, or not, we still need to be saved from our sins. Whether or not we know Jesus or not, we may still need to come home. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is waiting. He's anticipating. He is watching for every single person to come home. He is hoping that they will. Because He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. And that invitation is still alive today. Come home. Come home. Come home. That is the message that is in the prodigal son. That is the message in the birth story of Jesus. In fact, one person said, God is the Father who watches and waits for His children runs out to meet them, embraces them, pleads with them, begs and urges them to come home. So this morning, if you are here or watching online, and right now you are probably living a life and you know that the life maybe you're living, it's just like, what am I doing? There's got to be something better than this. You are just at the end of yourself. I want to say to you, Come home. Come home. You will be embraced joyfully by the Father. And maybe there are those of us here or online who have been following Jesus for a long time. And maybe we've got a little resentful. Maybe we've got a little judgmental at others. Maybe we've got, gotten a little virtuous by comparing ourselves to others who maybe are not so virtuous. The invitation is the same. Come home. Come home. Father, this morning, as we are here, I pray, Jesus, for every single one of us, whether we see ourselves as the younger son or as the older one, all of us, at some point, Jesus, we know, we leave home. 
And Father, I pray that this morning, if anyone has, I pray that they would come back. That they would know that they can come and be restored once again, not simply as a servant, but Father, as your son or daughter, as a child. Father, I pray that we would embrace this hope of redemption, that you have paid the price, that you have shamed yourself as that father did running to his son. You shamed yourself by dying on the cross for us. And I pray, Jesus, I pray that we would respond to you and that we would come home because this is where we belong, with you. It's in your name that I pray, Jesus. Amen.